The first word of the book of Exodus. The first word of the book of Exodus is not these. In your Bibles and uh, my Bible and uh, the translation that we have, these is the first word. These are the names of the sons of Israel. The first word is, in fact, and. And these are the names of the sons of Israel. Now, and in Hebrew is just one letter. It's just a one letter that is attached to the beginning of a word. But and is a conjunction. And if you ask someone who is of my age, what is the function of a conjunction? And you dutifully spent your Saturday mornings watching cartoons as you should have, and you paid your dues by watching Grammar Rock, which came on in the middle of the cartoons as some kind of offering of education, then you know that the function of a conjunction is to hook up words and phrases and clauses. And so your English teachers taught you not to start sentences and probably not to start books with the conjunction and, because you needed to have something that went along with it. You needed somehow to have a connecting thought if you're going to use the conjunction and. Well, what is the prior thought? What is the connecting thought that Moses has as he begins the book of Exodus? With what is the connection made? And the answer is this. In the beginning, God created. God created the heavens and the earth. He created all things in the beginning. Exodus begins with a message from God. It's a message to, our, to a people who at this stage are, are into a time of darkness, a time of oppression, and the message begins by saying this, you're not alone. You're not isolated. Your story is not forgotten. You are not randomly here. You're not forgotten by me. You're not abandoned by me. You're not forsaken in this land. You, in fact are connected by a conjunction. Your story, Israel, is part of my story. And my story is I'm the creator God. My story starts like that. And you are part of this story. From the very beginning, the very first page, the very first page of the book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, it is clear that God had a plan. And his plan, at the centerpiece of that plan, were two people, Adam and Eve. And those two people, God gave, to those two people, God gave a mission. And the mission that he gave to them was quite simply to go and multiply and fill the earth. Together with the rest of creation, the rest of living creation, and with the processes that God had put into creation that it would be reproducing, that it would multiply, that it would fill you, humanity, Adam and Eve, you get on board with this. You get into this mission as well, this mission of filling the earth. It was a blessing, that command was a blessing that was given to them, as well as a challenge, a mission with which they were entrusted. And I trust that even as I, I read the text for us this morning and with your own perhaps familiarity with this text, that you see the deliberate intent that exists to connect Exodus chapter 1 with Genesis chapter 1 
and the plans and the purposes of God. These are given to us in Genesis chapter 1. They're repeated to Noah after the fall, this idea of going forth and being fruitful, multiplying and filling the earth. And the exact same language is then picked up here at the beginning of Exodus to say, listen, this is really taking place. So if you look at verse 7 as the probably clearest example of it, but the people of Israel were fruitful. They increased greatly, they multiplied, they grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. This is picking up on Genesis language. In fact, it's, it's kind of building. Each one of those statements builds upon the other and then it uses the idea that, that, that the people were teeming, they were swarming, they were, they were like the, the insects and the birds and, and things like that in terms of their infiltration of the land of Egypt. Clearly, God was at work in this incubator. Clearly, God was bringing forth life in the land of Egypt. And, and, and we can go on and we can look at the other verses in here as well. Pharaoh's recognition that the people of Israel are too many and they're too mighty for us in verse 9. Verse 12, that great verse, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they filled the land. The more you tried to push them down, the more they filled up the land. I'll give you one example of this. I can't resist this one example. So this was a time Lauren was in the hospital with Nathan and people were giving us food to eat and I had a container of spaghetti sauce that I had gotten out of the refrigerator and it was in this cardboard container and, and it was contained. It was in one little spot like the land of Goshen. Okay, think of it. That's where Israel's in this one little spot. And so I, I'm holding this thing and the kids, Danny and Tim, are, are running around. I don't know what's going on. And, and I've got my hand on something else. And as I'm taking this out of the refrigerator, it begins to slip through my grasp. And there was nothing I could do. I, I, I couldn't free my other hand. I don't remember what it was doing, but I couldn't free my other hand. So I tried to press harder. I tried to squeeze it tighter with the result merely that it slipped out of my hand. And, and, and as it slipped out of my hand, it hit the ground. And the pressure exerted on that thing, that cardboard container of spaghetti sauce, together with the pressure exerted by my hand as it hit the ground, caused this great filling to take place. This great expansion, this multiplication of spaghetti sauce all over the kitchen. It was amazing. Uh, it, was, it hit the ceiling. I didn't know how that had taken place, but it, it was enough that even in the midst of my frustration, I was able to laugh at this multiplication. But nevertheless, that's the idea here with the people of God, no matter what you do to them. No matter what goes on with them, God keeps blessing them. They keep multiplying. They keep filling up this land no matter how hard Pharaoh tries to put them down, to put them in their place, and to stop this from taking place. Remember, this was the covenant promise that God had made to the patriarchs. So it wasn't only the command that he had given at the very beginning, but it was also the promise to Abraham and then repeated to Isaac and to Jacob that your descendants would be take your pick, numerous as the stars of the heaven or the sands by the seashore, this multiplication is going to take place. And the prophets take up the call, and the prophets' words, the way they say it, is the whole earth will be full of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. It's going to be filled up. And then Jesus and, and, and the apostles and, and on into the book of Revelation talk about this filling of the earth that is taking place. Now, let me just pause there for a second, this idea of connection by way of encouragement, by way of application to us. Let's say it this way. Sometimes in this world, 
you may feel disconnected. You might feel disconnected from your church. You might feel disconnected from people who are your friends. You might feel disconnected from your family. You might feel disconnected from the culture in which you live. In other words, you might feel isolated. You might feel alone. But your story, like Israel's story, starts with a conjunction. And Ray, and Kate, and Nick, and Justin. It starts off that way. It starts off by connecting the people of God. Your story starts with and. Your story connects with our story, and such and such and such and such and such, and such were members of Christ the King Presbyterian Church. Our story is Israel's story, and they are all connected together because our story, Israel's story, is Jesus' story. And when you're in Christ, those connections come together. Now, that should be comforting for us as we even begin this book to know of the connections that exist, but it should be a little bit troubling for us as well because if we are, in fact, connected in mission with what has taken place here with this expansion, it becomes quickly evident that we are likewise connected with them in this life of conflict, in the oppressions that we see taking place in the book of Exodus. We're not merely connected with them in a nice, smooth process of growth by which everything goes exactly the way it should go and, and, and everything is nice, but we are connected with a conflict that started back in Genesis and is ever being played out in the life of the people of God at whatever particular time they live, in whatever particular place they live. The conflict is between the seed of the woman, who in the book of Exodus is represented by, played by Israel, and the seed of the serpent, who in the book of Exodus, starring in the role of the seed of the serpent, is Pharaoh. And it's a conflict that started there and continues through the end of the world. A new king arose, a new pharaoh arose, if you want to put it in Egyptian language, a new dynasty arose. We don't know exactly the timing of when this particular dynasty arose, but a new king, a new pharaoh arose who didn't know Joseph, and the good times were over. The good, easy times when Joseph was the right-hand man were over. He had died. And clearly, this new pharaoh, in terms of the way this is written and presented for us, sets himself in direct opposition to the plan of God, to the revealed plan of God and his covenant. Whether he realizes what God had promised to his people or not is irrelevant. He is set in opposition to it because he does not want that which God has promised and commanded, namely, a lot of people. He wants to stop the multiplication at any cost. He doesn't want to see that continuing. He wants to stop the filling. He wants to restrict this people to get them back to a particular place, and so Pharaoh is set in opposition to the purposes of God, and these cruel oppressions of the people of God are started, which move from a forced servitude to an odious slavery, to the attempted pogrom, the massacre of the Hebrew male 
children. He attempted to make their lives as bitter as he possibly could. We're connected. Amen. We're connected in conflict as well with them. The people of God are always in conflict with the course of this world. In the book of Revelation, it's described this way. It's the conflict between the dragon and the woman. It's pictorially set forth for the people of God to know until the end, the dragon is after you. And when there's a dragon after you, life's going to be full of difficulties. It's going to be full of oppressions, whatever shape they may take in a particular life. The dragon will not stop. Now, the focal point of this conflict in the history of God's people comes down to Jesus himself, to Jesus himself, who will be pursued not, not by Pharaoh, not by the king of the Egyptians, but by the one who was the king of the Jews. The conflict even comes within from the people of God as that reversal takes place in the massacre of the innocents, of the male children in Bethlehem. It's a reversal. Not even Israel is safe from oppression when Israel's king goes after the king of kings. You and I are connected to this mission, and you and I are connected to this mission in conflict. Who of us hasn't felt, hasn't experienced the oppression and the bitterness of this battle. Anybody here? Is anybody here not experienced these conflicts, the anxiety? Some of us battle with anxiety, with fears, with depression. Some of us battle with nagging sin that just won't seem to go away. Some of us battle with the demons of a brutal past, and it just won't let go. Some of us battle with hopelessness, with feelings of inadequacy, but all of us battle. All of us struggle. It is part of being connected to the people of God. You may think that you're the only one in this room who struggles. You are not. All of us do. We wear it in different ways. Sometimes it's more visible, sometimes it's less visible. Sometimes it's physical and external and we can see it and know about it, and other times it's not. But there's not a person here who doesn't battle in this world. Now, in the midst of this conflict, there are two women in this chapter who show us that in the midst of a conflict, you have to have Convictions. So if, if you're following along here, connections, conflict, convictions. You've got to fear God more than you fear men if you're going to live well in this battle. Pharaoh's got all the powers of the world aligned on his side. And two Hebrew midwives to the Hebrews, Shifra and Puah, to whom God grants faith, stand and say, nope, we are not following what Pharaoh has told us to do. 
Now, it is worth taking a moment to, to try and put ourselves in the position of these two women, perhaps they're in charge of the midwives, of these two women standing before the power of the earth and hearing this command given to them. What extraordinary courage they had when they walk away from that meeting and they look at each other and say, we can't do that. We've got to figure out another way. We've got to figure out a way that we are not going to kill these children. We are midwives. Midwives are bringer of life. They usher in life. By the way, just to point this out, there are two things in this, this book that are supposed to nurture life. Well, Egypt was supposed to nurture life. The Nile is supposed to nurture life, but later on throw the babies in the Nile. Midwives are supposed to nurture life. And their purposes are being rerouted, redirected, kill them, put them to death. Anyway, the courage that it took for these two women to say, no, we are not going to do that. And of course, somehow Pharaoh sees a lot of little baby boys running around, sees a lot of, uh, maybe hears a lot of baby boy cries and wants to know what's going on. I thought I issued a decree to say, put all the baby boys of the Hebrews to death. And so he brings them in and he wants to know. What's up? Why do I still hear this? Kind of like Samuel. Why, what's this bleeding of sheep that I hear? What, what are all these infant Hebrew boys doing around? And we've got to look at their response because it's going to be a little bit troubling for us if you look at it and think about it for a moment. Here's, here's the situation. Verse 18. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. Now, mind you, before anything else is said here, Exodus is going to be the book of the Ten Commandments, by the way, which include do not lie as one of the commandments, and it's going to say in a number of places, don't lie. Genesis has given us a couple of bad examples of lying. Even prior to the Ten Commandments having been given, Abraham is guilty of it, Isaac guilty of it, Rebecca and others guilty of lies. And so these two women come before Pharaoh with this story. There are three possibilities, all right? Here's possibility number one in trying to understand this as the people of God. Possibility number one is that they didn't lie. That maybe there were a few times when this actually happened, where the midwives couldn't get there in time, the babies came before they had gotten there, and they just tell a half-truth. Okay, so they don't tell the full story. This actually took place a few times. So they, in fact, themselves didn't lie when Pharaoh asked them, and they give this report of the vigorous Hebrew women who were popping them out before they even get there. That's a possibility. Uh, now, all of us are experienced in one way or another with half-truths. When we were missionaries in Ukraine, I had a number of ways that I could identify myself depending on who was asking the question, who are you and what are you doing here? So if it was a pastor, I answered that one way. If it was a passport control official, I answered it another way. If it was the uh, attache or the ambassador from a country that was a little bit more hostile to the gospel, and they said, why do you want a visa to come in here? There was a whole other answer. There were times where I was an educator, times when I was a dean of students of a seminary, times when I might have said missionary or pastor 
or instructor or humanitarian aid or we're here on a cultural exchange program. I'm a tourist. And I, in fact, I was a tourist. I went and saw things. So it's possible that you could look at this thing and say that they did not lie. Second possibility is that, uh, that, that in fact, God commends, and you know as this story goes along, God commends what they've done here. God is not commending their lying. They did, in fact, lie. God is commending the faith that they exercise. Lying is never right. They shouldn't have lied. That was the wrong thing to do. You take the consequences, come what may. You never lie, period. That has a good history of interpretation behind it by no less than Augustine and Calvin. And it is a very serious possibility as to what is the right answer. There's a third possibility. The third possibility is they lied. It was a lie of necessity. It was a life or death situation, dire circumstances, not only for them, but for children. And they looked Pharaoh right in the eye. They said, vigorous, nothing we can do about it. Corey Tenboom question. Right? Are you hiding Jews here? Any Jews in your household? It's a question somebody breaks into your house. Dads, you've been able to hide your family. Somehow you knew they were getting ready to break in your house. Anybody else here? Well, all of us have got to wrestle through this. We've all got to wrestle through the implications. For my money, I think they lied courageously, faithfully, with conviction. And I think in these circumstances, it was exactly the right thing to do. Look them right in the eye, say, I'm here alone. Thanks very much. Now, is that dangerous? Yeah, it's dangerous. Is it the slippery slope? Have you opened Pandora's box? Maybe, maybe. I, I'll grant that as a possibility. It's a possibility. But these are exceptional circumstances. Abraham was wrong. He was looking to save his own skin, not somebody else's. He was willing to put his wife in harm's way. Isaac was wrong. Rebecca was wrong. Those were lies. This isn't a lie of a convenient or difficult situation, dire circumstances. Look them in the eye and send them the other way. No spies here. Haven't seen any spies where they went that way. In any case, God commends them for their faith. We are connected with saints in conflict. And we are connected with saints whose convictions, whose fear of the Lord has guided them to act faithfully in circumstances like this over the years. That is the point of Hebrews chapter 11. You and I are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, by a cloud of witnesses of people of faith who have done extraordinary things for the Lord and for the sake of his people. And we're connected the baton is in our hands. And the cloud of witnesses says, run, run well, run faithfully, 
I'm quoting Joe Novenson there, if you know Joe. Shifra and Pua urge us to run well, and their urging of us is in light of the last C that I want to give. The last C that I want to give in this sermon is the, they're urging us in light of a confirmation. And the confirmation that they have for us is the confirmation that, brothers and sisters, as you run, God keeps his promises. It is confirmed. No matter what Egypt does, God keeps his promises. He does what he says he will do. God did good to the midwives. He gave them families. He watched over them. It would have been hard living during this time. It would have been tempting for us to have been in complete despair, just like it would have been natural, right? I mean, where's God? Where's God when all this is taking place? But seen so clearly on these pages is the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. They eventually caught up to Jesus. They didn't catch him in Bethlehem. But they eventually caught up to Jesus. And they killed him. And the result is the roundness. Look at the multiplication. It's 2,000 plus years later. And there's a hundred or however many of our there are in, in this room and hundreds and thousands gathered all around the world right now. We do pretty well as a church, as the people of God, under oppression. A lot of us fear, where's our culture going? What's going to be happening with our kids? Now, there, there are things to be concerned about, but afraid? No. God's people do well under oppression. Because Jesus did well under oppression. Under the weight of the snow as it melted yesterday. You know, the, the hyacinth are getting ready. They're shooting up already. The daffodils are shooting up. Couldn't believe it when I saw it. They're there. God has plans for the people of Israel. We know that, right? I mean, we, we want to save redemption uh, because it's not in Exodus 1. Exodus 1 ends in a dark place. But we know that God has plans for the people of Israel, plans for welfare, not for evil, give them a future and a hope, plans to get them out of here, plans to redeem them, to take them out of this place, right? We know that. But multiplication is God's plan. And I want to tell you something else that's going to sound completely out of place in a sermon on Exodus 1. God has big plans for Egypt as well. Plans for welfare and not for evil. Plans to give Egypt a future and a hope. Plans to do good to Egypt. Now, it's off in the future. But if you don't believe me, listen to the words of Isaiah 19 in light of Exodus chapter 1. In that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt, and a pillar to the Lord at its border. It will be a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. When they, the Egyptians, cry to the Lord because of their oppressors, he will send them a savior and a defender, 
and deliver them, and the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians, and the Egyptians will know the Lord. And that day, and they will worship with sacrifice. And in that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. God has multiplication plans. In this book, they are focused on Israel, but that's too small because he's got filling the earth in mind. And if you're going to fill the earth with worshipers, you're going to need worshipers from Egypt as well. And God's got plans to draw them out, to deliver them, to send them a savior and to bring them out of bondage. Israel's part of the story. You are part of the story. And Egypt is part of the story. We're connected. We're connected in conflict, and we've got to live by our convictions with a hope that is confirmed by the redemption that has been secured for Israel, for Egypt, and for us, purchased by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.